Hello and welcome to the podcast, An Overview of English Literature, the perfect place for book lovers and enthusiasts of English literature. My name is Fernanda Moura, I'm a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 30 of the podcast, which is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to share some exciting news for Jane Austen lovers. On Friday, May 26th at 12 p.m. Central European Summertime, I will host a free online masterclass called Pastimes in Jane Austen's Era. Do you want to know what people did for fun in Regency England? What activities did Jane Austen and her characters do to pass the time? You can find the link to sign up for free on my Instagram account at books.end.culture. Or you can send me a message via email at hello at booksandculture.club and I'll send you the link. If you cannot join the Masterclass live, you can watch the recording, which will be available for two weeks after the Masterclass date. And if you'd like to further explore and study the life and works of Jane Austen, you should definitely check out the online course, The Jane Austen Club. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you have instant access to all classes, which you can follow at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the critical reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. You can register for the course via the website booksandculture.club and start your Austenian journey right away. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the 11th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 p.m. Central European time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this pro project to the podcast and overview of English literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen o'clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time, and if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents, so I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoyed this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the 11th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Hello, book lovers. Welcome to our session number 11 of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Let me know if you're watching this live. Let me know how you're doing, what you think of the novel so far. We are now in volume three. So we are slowly reaching the end, so the resolution of all, of all the conflicts. And I would love to know how your experience with Austin and especially Sense and Sensibility has been so far. 
Today we're going to be talking about chapters 38 to 41. Um, so we are um, starting with, let's see, um, chapter 38 or uh, chapter 2 of volume 3. So we are in the beginning of volume 3. Remember that Sense and Sensibility was um, originally published in uh, three volumes. So today we're going to talk, continue talking about uh, volume 3. Um, so before we move on to our reading of today, let's refresh our memories and let's take a look at what we talked about last time. So last time in session 10, we talked about chapters 34 to 37, which means that we finished volume two last time. Um, we talked about, where is it? Here are my notes. <laughs> So we talked about the dinner at Fanny and John Dashwood's. Edward is not present, but Mrs. Ferris is, as well as the Miss Steeles. And during this dinner, Fanny Dashwood and Mrs. Ferris, so that is Edward's mother and sister, slide Eleanor the whole time which makes Marianne indignant, right? So remember, they were horrified with the possibility of Edward Ferrers, a man with great expectations of him marrying uh, Eleanor Dashwood, who is a girl, a good girl, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that she has little fortune. Um, so they don't want to contribute in anything to the development of this attachment, quite the contrary. So in a way to slight Eleanor in this dinner, they elevate Miss Lucy Steele. They compliment her, give her a lot of attention, and little do they know that in fact it is Lucy Steele who is secretly engaged to Edward Ferris. If they knew, they would have acted completely different, of course. Um, and that is what happens during this dinner. For Lucy, it's great. Of course, she doesn't know the whole uh, picture. So she gets really hopeful with all this attention. She thinks that perhaps Edward's family would um, welcome her, accept her. After all, if they really liked her and they seem to really like her. Uh, later on, Edward comes to visit um, and finds Eleanor alone with Lucy. And that was such an awkward moment. A classical teenager moment, the three, the love triangle meeting. And uh, no one knows how to behave. No one knows how much the other knows. It is, in fact, only... Eleanor, who knows everything, who knows about the secret engagement. But at that point, Edward does not know that 
um, Eleanor knows. Now I feel like I'm in one of those uh, those uh, episodes of Friends. They don't know that we know that they know. Do you? Um, if you're a fan of Friends or if you've seen the series, you will have caught the reference. But anyway, this is it. They don't know how much the other knows. It's a very awkward moment. And to make it even more awkward, Marianne is uh, there and she joins them and she's oblivious of the love triangle or even the love square, if we also consider Miss Morton. Um, so that made things even more awkward. Um now, what we also read about, Elnor meets Edward's brother, Robert, who is the complete opposite of Edward. Robert is such um, an arrogant man, very lazy, no ambition in life, no purpose. He only likes to have a, an easy, uh, lazy and superficial life, sp expensive life as well. Um, and John Dashwood thinks of inviting his half-sisters to stay with them, but Fanny manages to convince him that they should invite the Miss Stills instead, which makes Lucy very happy. So remember the powerful ma manipulative um, skills of Mrs. John Dashwood, Fanny Dashwood, and she convinces, like she convinced uh, John in the beginning, that he owed nothing to his half-sisters in terms of money after their father passed away. Now she manages to convince him that they should not invite um, Eleanor and Marianne to stay over at their place, even though they are relation, they are related, and instead they invite the Miss Stills. So. Lucy and Nancy. And again, Fanny Dashwood was unaware of the whole secret engagement between Lucy and Edward. So she was, in fact, bringing the enemy home. And she had no idea, of course. And Lucy is extremely happy. And that is the end of volume two. And then we also read the first chapter of volume three. We also read the first volume. I mean, we also read the first chapter of volume three last time and the truth comes out so Fanny Dashwood learns about Edward and Lucy's engagement and expels the Miss Stills from the house very drastic situation and Marianne now that she learns what Eleanor had been suffering all this time she had known about their engagement Eleanor knew, knew about Lucy and Edward's engagement for over, was it two or four months? Four months. So Marianne suffers to learn about Eleanor's suffering, that she hid this pain for four months. And despite Mrs. Ferris' threats, Edward keeps the engagement, he's a very honorable man, with Lucy, out of a sense of honor and duty. So he does not really feel love for Lucy anymore. It was a, a passion from the past when they were young. Things have changed. But no matter what, he will honor his word. And because of that, because he, um, he, he wants to keep this engagement, 
Despite his family's disapproval, Edward is banned from his mother's home and his inheritance is cut out. He has, in, in short, he has no home, no income, and, but he does have a fiancé, Lucy Steele. But how will they survive? Lucy has no fortune at all. She's a simple girl from a simple family. Uh, so maybe thinking back, Mrs. Ferris would probably prefer Edward with Eleanor Dashwood instead of Lucy Steele, but what is done is done. And that's where we stopped, where we left the story last time. Uh, so today we are going to carry on with chapter 38 or chapter 2, volume 3. So let's read together. Mrs. Jennings was very warm in her praise of Edward's conduct. But only Eleanor and Marianne understood its true merit. They only knew how little he had had to tempt him to be disobedient. And how small was the consolation beyond the consciousness of doing right that could remain to him in the loss of friends and fortune. Eleanor gloried in his integrity and Marianne forgave all his offenses in compassion for his punishment. So Eleanor glories Edward's integrity and Marianne his compassion. Very important, very, um, very much related to their own personalities. But though confidence between them was, by this public discovery, restored to its proper state, it was not a subject on which either of them were fond of dwelling when alone. Eleanor avoided it upon principle, as tending to fix still more upon her thoughts by the too warm, too positive assurances of Marianne, that belief of Edward's continued affection for herself, which she rather wished to do away. And Marianne's courage soon failed her in trying to converse upon a topic which always left her more dissatisfied with herself than ever, by the comparison it necessarily produced between Eleanor's conduct and her own. She felt all the force of that comparison, but not as her sister had hoped to urge her to exertion now. She felt it with all the pain of continual self-reproach, regretted most bitterly that she had never exerted herself before, but it brought only the torture of penitence without the hope of amendment. Her mind was so much weakened that she still fancied present exertion impossible, and therefore it only dispirited her more. Again, the word exertion is being repeated a lot. We've talked about this in previous sessions. So exertion... Um, as in the context of the time, it meant to uh, use the faculties of your brain, rationalization, to overcome the passions of the body. And that's what Eleanor does all the time. She's the embodiment of sense in this novel. And now Marianne feels self-reproach, regret, and pain when she compares herself or her behavior to Eleanor how Eleanor has handled things so far, the exertion she was, um, uh, uh, she was, she could perform, 
Marian just can't. She's still struggling, but she admires her sister for it. But in this comparison, she also feels pain. She also suffers because she sees how little she has done herself in comparison to Eleanor. Nothing new was heard by them for a day or two afterwards of affairs in Harley Street or Bartlett's buildings, meaning the dash, the 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 fairs and the dashwoods. But though so much of the matter was known to them already, that Mrs. Jennings might have had enough to do in spreading that knowledge farther without seeking after more, she had resolved from the first to pay a visit of comfort and inquiry to her cousins as soon as she could, and nothing but the hindrance of more visitors than usual had prevented her going to them within that time. The third day succeeding their knowledge of the particulars was so fine, so beautiful a Sunday as to draw many to Kensington Gardens, though it was not only the second week in March. So Mrs. Jennings wanted to know more. She's a gossiper, right? So she wants, she, although she already knew enough and she knew a lot, she wanted to know more so she could spread the rumors. That's why she wanted to pay a visit to the um, Miss Steele's at Bartlett's buildings or to visit the, um, uh, the Dashwoods, uh, John and Fanny, but she had visitors, so she really couldn't. And on the third day, it was such a beautiful day that they decided to go to Kensington Gardens. Now, let me share a contextual note with you here. So the Kensington Gardens were personally familiar to Jane Austen, who with her brother Harry and friends had a pleasant walk in Kensington Gardens on Sunday. Everything was fresh and beautiful, she wrote in a letter from 25th April 1811. And according to the original picture of London, 26th edition, this delightful place, the Kensington Gardens, is always open to the public from six o'clock in the morning in summer and seven in winter till sunset. So it was a place to walk around, but more importantly, it was a place to see and be seen. So you would go there in order to, it was a social activity, it was not just outdoor enjoyment. It was a part of a social circle of activities in the high season in London. So Mrs. Jennings and Eleanor were of the number, went to Kensington Gardens. But Marianne, who knew that the Willoughbys were again in town and had a constant dread of meeting them, chose rather to stay at home than venture into so public a space. An intimate acquaintance of Mrs. Jennings joined them soon after they entered the gardens, and Eleanor was not sorry that by her continuing with them and engaging all Mrs. Jennings' conversation, she was herself left to quiet reflection. She saw nothing of the Willoughbys, nothing of Edward, and for some time nothing of anybody who could by any chance, whether grave or gay, be interesting to her. But at last she found herself with some surprise accosted by Miss Still, who, though looking rather shy, expressed great satisfaction in meeting them and on receiving encouragement from the particular kindness of Mrs. Jennings, left her own party for a short time to join theirs. Mrs. Jennings immediately whispered to Eleanor, 
Get it all out of her, my dear. She will tell you anything if you ask. You see, I cannot leave Mrs. Clark. So that was another reason why Mrs. Jennings went to the park to gather more information and to gossip. But now she couldn't talk to Miss Still. So if it's Miss plus last name, it means it's the oldest Miss Still, so not Lucy. Um, she wanted Eleanor to get everything out of her, all the information. It was lucky, however, for Mrs. Jenny's curiosity and Eleanor's too, that she would tell anything without being asked, for nothing would otherwise have been learned. Proper Eleanor would never have asked such improper questions. But luckily she didn't have to, because Miss Steele would just say it all without being asked. So let's take a look at this dialogue. I am so glad to meet you, said Miss Steele, taking her fam familiarly by the arm for I wanted to see you of all things in the world. And then, lowering her voice, I suppose Mrs. Jennings has heard all about it. Is she angry? Not at all, I believe, with you. That is a good thing. And Lady Middleton, is she angry? I cannot suppose it possible that she could, that she should. I am monstrous glad of it. Good gracious, I have had such a time of it. I never saw Lucy in such a rage in my life. She vowed at first she would never trim me up a new bonnet, nor do anything else for me again so long as she lived. But now she's quite overcome, she's quite come to, and we are as good friends as ever. Look, she made me this bow to my hat, this bow to my hat, and put in the feather last night. There now, you are going to laugh at me too, but why should not I wear pink ribbons? I do not care if it is the doctor's favorite color. I'm sure for my part, I should never have known he did like it better than any other color if he had not happened to say so. My cousins have been so plaguing me. I declare sometimes I do not know which way to look before them. Of course, she finds a way to make it all about her doctor. Her doctor, right? Because we only get her her side of the story. We have no idea how the doctor actually feels about her. She had wandered away to a subject on which Eleanor had nothing to say and therefore soon judged it expedient to find her way back again to the first. Well, but Miss Dashwood, speaking triumphantly, People may say what they choose about Mr. Ferris declaring he would not have Lucy, for it's not such a thing I can tell you, and it's quite a shame for such ill-natured reports to be spread abroad. Whatever Lucy might think about it herself, you know, it was no business of other people to set it down for certain. I never heard anything of the kind hinted at before, I assure you, said Eleanor. Oh, did not you? But it was said, I know very well, and by more than one. For Miss Godby told Miss Parks that nobody in their senses could expect Mr. Ferris to give up a woman like Miss Morton with 30,000 pounds to her fortune for Lucy Steele that had nothing at all. And I had it from Miss Parks myself. Look at the gossip, right? And besides that, my cousin Richard said himself that when it came to the point, he was afraid Mr. Ferris would be off. And when Edward did not come near us for three days, I could not tell what to think myself. And I believe in my heart Lucy gave it all up for lost. 
for we came away from your brother's Wednesday, and we saw nothing of him, not all Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and did not know what was become with him. Once Lucy thought to write to him, but then her spirit rose against that. However, this morning, he came just as we came home from church, and then it all came out, how he had been sent for Wednesday to Harley Street, and been talked to by his mother and all of them, and how he had declared before them all that he loved nobody but Lucy, and nobody but Lucy would he have, and how he had been so worried by what passed that as soon as he had went away from his mother's house, he had got upon his horse and read into the country somewhere or other, and how he had strayed about at an inn all Thursday and Friday on purpose to get the better of it. And after thinking it all over and over again, he said, it seemed to him as if now he had no fortune and no nothing at all, it would be quite unkind to keep her on to the engagement, because it must be for her loss, for he had nothing but two thousand pounds and no hope for anything else. And if he was going to go into orders, as he had some thoughts, he could get nothing but a curacy, and how was they to live upon that? He could not bear to think of her doing no better, and so he begged, if she had the least mind for it, to put an end to the matter directly, and leave him to shift for himself. I heard him say all this as plain as could possibly be, and it was entirely for her sake, and upon her account, that he said a word about being off, and not upon his own. I will take my oath he never dropped a syllable of being tired of her or of wishing to marry Miss Morton or anything like it. But to be sure, Lucy would not give ear to such kind of talking. So she told him directly, with a great deal about sweet and love, you know, and all that. Oh, la, one can't repeat such, repeat such kind of things, you know. She told him directly she had not the least mind in the world to be off, for she could live with him upon a trifle. And how little so ever he might have, she should be very glad to have it all, you know, or something of the kind. So then he was monstrous happy and talked on some time about what they should do. And they agreed he should take orders directly and they must wait to be married till he got a living. And just then I could not hear any more for my cousin called from below to tell me Mrs. Richardson was come in her coach and would take one of us to Kensington Gardens. So I was forced to go into the room and interrupt them to ask Lucy if she would like to go, but she did not care to leave Edward. So I just run upstairs, run upstairs and put on a pair of silk stockings and came off with the Richardsons. Whoa, this is all that um, is still uh, told Eleanor a lot of information so it's quite interesting how she says that Edward took time to reflect like Eleanor does he took time to reflect think about his options and he went back to see Lucy and tell her that she was not bound to the engagement because now he had nothing to offer her no money no home so she was free to break it off if she wanted. But Lucy said nothing in the world would make her uh, break off the engagement that she would stay with Edward no matter what that they could make do with any kind of income. So the plan is for him to go into orders. So what does it mean to go into orders? Let's take a look at this note. 
to enter the ministry of the Church of England, but at the lowest clerical rank, that of a curate. Curates were proverbially underpaid as priests without a living of their own, but hired to fulfill the duties of the absent rector or vicar who, having multiple livings and their incomes, was not in residence. To obtain a living of one's own in the church, it was necessary to have influence in the landed classes, where control was invested on or to have money enough to buy one, both conditions missing for Edward. So you could have money being part of the church if you owned a living. Um, so then you would have the fixed income and also part of the profit of the whole property. Uh, profit of the whole property, but to be able to own a living, so that also comes with um, a house and everything, you needed to be friends with powerful people, with the people who owned the land, so the landowner would offer the living to, when it became vacant, to someone from their own family or a friend or someone they, owe, they owed um, something to. Or if you bought a living, you could also buy a living, but then, of course, you needed the money, and Edward did not have any of these options. So what he could do is to start to take orders and work as a curate, meaning that he would be in the lowest rank of uh, the clerical, the lowest clerical rank. So not good prospects, not at all. He would have a very poor life. And remember, he was born in a very um, noble and landed gentry family. So it would be a very different lifestyle. And then let's continue their conversation. I do not understand what you mean by interrupting them, said Eleanor. You were all in the same room together, were not you? Oh, not, no, indeed, not us. La, Miss Dashwood, do you think people make love when anybody else is by? Oh, for shame, to be sure you must know better than that, laughing affectedly. No, no, they were shut up in the drawing room together, and all I heard was only by listening at the door. How, cried Eleanor, have you been repeating to me what you only learned yourself by listening at the door? I am sorry I did not know it before, for I certainly would not have suffered you to give me particulars of a conversation which you ought not to have known yourself. How could you behave so unfairly by your sister? Oh, lamb, there is nothing in that. I only stood at the door and heard what I could. And I am sure Lucy would have done just the same by me. For a year or two back, when Martha Sharp and I had so many secrets together, she never made any bones of hiding in a closet or behind a chimney board on purpose to hear what we said. Eleanor tried to talk of something else, but Miss Steele could not be kept beyond a couple of minutes from what was uppermost in her mind. Edward talks of going to Oxford soon, said she, but now he's lodging at number something, Palmo. What an ill-natured woman his mother is, ain't she? And your brother and sister were not very kind. However, I shan't say anything against them to you. And to be sure, they did send us home in their own chariot, which was more than I looked for. And for my part, I was all in a fright for fear your sister should ask us for the housewives she had gave us a day or two before. 
but however, nothing was said about them, and I took care to keep mine out of sight. Edward have got some business at Oxford, he says. So you see that um, Nancy Steele also makes grammar mistakes, just like Lucy Steele, because they did not have a formal education. So this indicates her, their social rank, right? Edward have got some business at Oxford, he says. So he must go there for a time. And after that, as soon as he can light upon a bishop, he will be ordained. I wonder what curacy he will get. Good gracious, giggling as she spoke. I'd lay my life. I know what my cousins will say when they hear of it. They will tell me I should write to the doctor to get Edward the curacy of his new living. I know they will, but I'm sure I would not do such a thing for all the world. La, I shall say directly, I wonder how you could think of such a thing. I write to the doctor indeed. So again, she manages to make it about the doctor. But she says something that perhaps is not very clear to us contemporary readers. She says that after Edward goes to Oxford, he will uh, be ordained as soon as he can light upon a bishop. Now, what does it mean to light upon a bishop? This was a necessary step in entering the profession, an examination by a bishop to determine the applicant's suitability for the priesthood, requiring a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, a certificate affirming that he had attended the divinity lectures and was of good character, a knowledge of Latin, the scriptures, the church liturgy, and the 39 articles, a doctrinal statement of the Church of England. The examination could be as rigorous or as undemanding as the bishop pleased. So not everyone, although it depend, the bishop would be more or less rigorous depending on who they were talking to, of course, but it required at least a certificate from Oxford or Cambridge and knowledge of the scriptures. So Edward um, has that, right? So he would be examined by a bishop and he would probably be considered suitable enough for the job, and then he could be ordained and get a curacy. Well, said Eleanor, it is a comfort to be prepared against the worst. You have got your answers ready. Miss Steele was going to reply on the same subject, but the approach of her own party made another more necessary. Hola, here come the Richardsons. I had a vast deal more to say to you, but I must not stay away from them, not any longer. I assure you they are very genteel people. He makes a monstrous deal of money and they keep their own coach. I have not time to speak to Mrs. Jennings about it myself, but pray tell her I am quite happy to hear she's not in anger against us. And Lady Middleton the same. And if anything should happen to take you and your sister away, and Mrs. Jennings would, should want company, I'm sure we should be very glad to come and stay with her for as long a time as she likes. I suppose Lady Middleton won't ask us any more this bout. Goodbye. I am sorry Miss Marianne was not here. Remember me kindly to her. La, if you have not got your spotted musly on, I wonder you was not afraid of its being torn. Such was her parting concern. For after this, she had time only to pay her farewell compliments to Mrs. Jennings before her company was claimed by Mrs. Richardson. And Eleanor was left in possession of knowledge which might feed her powers of reflection some time, though she had learned very little more than what had been already foreseen and foreplanned in her own mind.
Edward's marriage with Lucy was as firmly determined on, and the time of its taking place remained as absolutely uncertain as she had concluded it would be. Everything depended, exactly after her expectation, on his getting that preferment of which at present there seemed not the smallest chance. So the conversation with Miss Steele makes it clear for Eleanor what she already forethought or even dreaded, that Edward and Lucy are indeed going to be married, but that this will not happen until Edward can secure a, a position of some sort so that they can have an income and be able to afford a living together. So that may take some time. As soon as they returned to the carriage, Mrs. Jennings was eager for information. But as Eleanor wished to spread as little as possible intelligence that had in the first place been so unfairly obtained, she confined herself to the brief repetition of such simple particulars as she felt assured that Lucy, for the sake of her own consequence, would choose to have known. The continuance of their engagement and the means that were to be taken for promoting its end was all her communication. And this produced from Mrs. Jennings the following natural remark. Wait for his having a living. Aye, we all know how that will end. They will wait a twelvemonth, and finding no good comes of it, will set down upon a curacy of fifty pounds a year, with the interest of his two thousand pounds, in what little matter Mr. Steele and Mr. Pratt can give her. Then they will have a child every year, and Lord help them how poor they will be. I must see what I can give them towards furnishing their house. Two maids and two men indeed, as I talked of the other day. No, no, they must get a stout girl of all works. Betty's sister would never do for them now. The next morning brought Eleanor a letter by the two penny post from Lucy herself. It was as follows. Bartlett's Buildings, March. I hope my dear Miss Dashwood will excuse the liberty I take of writing to her, but I know your friendship for me will make you pleased to hear such a good account of myself and my dear Edward. After all the troubles we have went through lately, therefore we'll make no more apologies, but proceed to, proceed to say that, thank God, though we have suffered dreadfully, we are both quite well now and as happy as we must always be in one another's love. We have had great trials and great persecutions, but however, at the same time, gratefully acknowledge many friends, yourself not the least among them, whose great kindness I shall always thankfully remember, as will Edward too, who I have told of it. I'm sure you will be glad to hear, as likewise, dear Mrs. Jennings, I spent two happy hours with him yesterday afternoon. He would not hear of our parting, though earnestly did I, as I thought my duty required, urge him to it for prudence sake, and would have parted forever on the spot, would he consent to it. But he said it should never be, he did not regard his mother's anger, all he could have my affections. Our prospects are not very bright, to be sure, but we must wait and hope for the best. He will be ordained shortly, and should it ever be in your power to recommend him to anybody that has a living to bestow, I'm very sure you will not forget us. And dear Mrs. Jennings, too, trust she will speak a good word for us to Sir John or Mr. Palmer or any friend that may be able to assist us. Poor Anne was much to blame for what she did, but she did it for the best, so I say nothing. Hope Mrs. Jennings won't think too much trouble to give us a call should she come this way any morning. It would be a great kindness, and my cousins would be proud to know her. 
My paper reminds me to conclude and begging to be most gratefully and respectfully remembered to her and to Sir John and Lady Middleton and the dear children when you chance to see them and love to Miss Marianne. I am, etc., etc. As soon as Elnor had finished it, she performed what she concluded to be its writer's real design by placing it in the hands of Mrs. Jennings, who read it aloud with many comments of satisfaction and praise. Very well indeed, how prettily she writes. I, that was quite proper to let him be off if he would. That was just like Lucy. Poor soul. I wish I could get him a living with all my heart. She calls me dear Mrs. Jennings, you see. She's a good-hearted girl as ever lived. Very well upon my word. That sentence is very prettily turned. Yes, yes, I will go and see her, sure enough. How attentive she is to think of everybody. Thank you, my dear, for showing it to me. It is as pretty a letter as ever I saw, and does Lucy's hand and heart great credit. And that is the end of chapter 38, or chapter 2 of volume 3. So we learn that the engagement is still strong, that Edward still is... Um, True to his word, and he will keep his uh, engagement with Lucy. He will marry her. But they cannot do so at the moment. First, he needs to find a position. And for that, he needs help from powerful people and rich people. And of course, his family will not help him. So Lucy is asking Eleanor and Mrs. Jennings if anyone knows of any vacant living so that Edward could take orders, become a curate, and have sort of income so that he and Lucy could marry. That's the state of things as we are now in chapter 38. So now let's see what happens in chapter 39 or chapter 3 of volume 3. The Miss Dashwoods had now been rather more than two months in town, and Marianne's impatience to be gone increased every day. She sighed for the air, the liberty, the quiet of the country, and fancied that if any place could give her ease, Barton must do it. Eleanor was hardly less anxious than herself for their removal, and only so much less bent on its being effected immediately, as that she was conscious of the difficulties of such of so long a journey, which Marianne could not be brought to a knowledge. She began, however, seriously to turn her thoughts towards its accomplishment, and had already mentioned their wishes to their kind hostess, who resisted them with all the eloquence of her goodwill when a plan was suggested, which, though detaining them from home yet a few weeks longer, appeared to Eleanor altogether much more eligible than any other. The Palmers were to remove to Cleveland about the end of March for the Easter holidays, and Mrs. Jennings, with both her friends, received a very warm invitation from Charlotte to go with them. This would not in itself have been sufficient for the delicacy of Miss Dashwood, but it was enforced with so much real politeness by Mr. Palmer himself, as joined to the very great amendment of his manners towards them since her sister had been known to be unhappy, induced her to accept it with pleasure. 
So you see that they want to go home, Eleanor and Marianne, but it's not that easy. Two girls, single, two single women, could not travel by themselves. So they would have to wait until someone could escort them or bring them home. And this could take months. So they've been over two months in London already. And they have no way of going home. So they decide to accept this invitation by the Palmers to go to Cleveland. Because then from there, they would be a bit closer to home. Um, so it was very hard for um, single women. They had no liberty at all. That was also the case with Jane Austen and her sister Cassandra. They were both um, unmarried women. They had several siblings, several brothers, and they would be taken from one place to the, next, to the other as if they were objects or pawns to help the family. So if one um, brother's wife got a baby, one of them would be sent for to help taking care of the house, help taking care of the baby, and then she would have to stay there for one, two, three months, and then they would have to wait until someone could bring them back to their home or then take them somewhere else to help another uh, baby or to help with another house. So they didn't have a life of their own, in fact. They were always um, dependent on, as unmarried women, on their families, on their relatives. Um, when, so let's continue. When she told Marianne what she had done, however, her first reply was not very auspicious. Cleveland, she cried with great agitation. No, I cannot go to Cleveland. You forget, said Eleanor gently, that its situation is not, that it's not in the neighborhood of, but it is in Somersetshire. I cannot go into Somersetshire, there where I looked forward to going. No, Eleanor, you cannot expect me to go there. Um, so the reason why Marianne does not want to go is because <clears throat> Somersetshire, the large, the large county adjacent to Devonshire on its eastern border, containing not only the Palmer's Cleveland, but also Willoughby's Combe Magna, so she does not want to go there because it is relatively close to where the Willoughby's would be staying. Although, as Mrs. Palmer has indicated to Eleanor earlier, the states are not within visiting distance of one another, such a way off near 30 miles, according to Mr. Palmer. So the chances of them meeting each other, unless they were invited or um, they created the opportunity for seeing each other, that would not happen very easily. But still, Marianne does not want to go there because that's the place where she imagined all her happiness would take place. So I, I can understand that by being there, she would look around and only think, oh, this could have been mine, this could have been my home, this is where I could have been happy. So she does not want to go. Elnor would not argue upon the propriety of overcoming such feelings. She only endeavored to counteract them by working on others, and represented it, therefore, as a measure which would fix the time of her returning to that dear mother whom she so much wished to see in a more eligible, more comfortable manner than any other plan could do, and perhaps without any greater delay. 
from Cleveland, which was within a few miles of Bristol. The distance to Barton was not beyond one day, though a long day's journey, and their mother's servant might easily come there to attend them down. And as there could be no occasion for their staying above a week at Cleveland, they might now be at home in little more than three weeks at a time. Three weeks' time. So it will still take them three weeks. They would be a long day's journey from home, but then their mother could send a servant to accompany them home. As Marianne's affection for her mother was sincere, it must triumph with little difficulty over the imaginary evils she had started. Mrs. Jennings was so far from being weary of her guests that she pressed them very earnestly to return with her again from Cleveland. Eleanor was grateful for the attention, but it could not alter their design, and their mother's concurrence being readily gained, everything relative to their return was arranged as far as it could be. And Marianne found some relief in drawing up a statement of the hours that were yet to divide her from Barton. Oh, Colonel, I do not know what you and I shall do without the Miss Dashwoods, was Mrs. Jennings' address to him when he first called on her after their leaving her was settled. For they are quite resolved upon going home from the Palmers, and how forlorn we shall be when I come back. Lord, we shall sit and gape at one another as dull as two cats. Perhaps Mrs. Jennings was in hopes by this vigorous catch of their future ennui to provoke him to make that offer which might give himself an escape from him, meaning to offer marriage to Eleanor. And if so, she had soon afterwards good reason to think her object gained. For, on Eleanor's moving to the window to take more expeditiously the dimensions of a print, which she was going to copy for her friend, he followed her to it with a look of particular meaning, and conversed with her there for several minutes. The effect of his discourse on the lady, too, could not escape her observation, for though she was too honourable to listen, and had even changed her seat on purpose that she might not hear, to one close by the pianoforte on which Marianne was playing, she could not keep herself from seeing that Eleanor changed colour, attended with agitation, and was too intent on what he said to pursue her employment. Still farther in confirmation of her hopes, in the interval of Marianne's turning from one lesson to another, some words of the colonel's inevitably reached her ear, in which he seemed to be apologising for the badness of his house. This set the matter beyond a doubt. She wondered indeed at his thinking it necessary to do so, but suppose it to be the proper etiquette. What Eleanor said in reply she could not distinguish, but judged from the motion of her lips that she did not think that any material objection. And Mrs. Jennings commended her in her heart for being so honest. They then talked on for a few minutes longer without her catching a syllable, when another lucky stop in Marian's performance brought her these words in the colonel's calm voice. I am afraid it cannot take place very soon. Astonished and shocked at so unloverlike a speech, she was almost ready to cry out, Lord, what should hinder it? But checking her desire, confined herself to this silent ejaculation. This is very strange. Sure, he, did, he need not wait to be older. This delay on the colonel's side, however, did not seem to offend or mortify his fair companion in the least, 
For on their breaking up the conference soon afterwards and moving different ways, Mrs. Jennings very plainly heard Eleanor say, and with a voice which showed her to feel what she said, I shall always think myself very much obliged to you. Mrs. Jennings was delighted with her gratitude and only wondered that after hearing such a sentence, the colonel should be able to take leave of them, as he immediately did, with the utmost sang-froid and go away without making her any reply. She had not thought her old friend could have made so indifferent a suitor. So Mrs. Jennings is watching and she sees that Colonel Brandon goes to the window where Eleanor is by herself and talks to her for a few minutes and that Eleanor changes color and she hears just parts of the conversation, but she already creates the whole picture and she conjectures her own truth that the colonel is actually proposing marriage to Eleanor and that she has accepted. But let's see what the narrator says. What had really passed between them was to this effect. So now we'll know what they were really talking about. I have heard, said he, Colonel Brandon, with great compassion of the injustice your friend Mr. Ferris has suffered from his family. For if I understand the matter right, he has been entirely cast off by them for persevering in his, in his engagement with a very deserving young woman. Have I been rightly informed? Is it so? Elnor told him that it was. The cruelty, the impolitic cruelty, he replied with great feeling, of dividing or attempting to divide two young people long attached to each other is terrible. Mrs. Ferris does not know what she may be doing, what she may drive her son to do. I have seen Mr. Ferris two or three times in Harley Street and am much pleased with him. He is not a young man with whom one can be intimately acquainted in a short time, but I have seen enough of him to wish him well for his own sake. And as a friend of yours, I wish it still more. I understand that he intends to take orders. Will you be so good as to tell him that the living of Delaford, now just vacant, as I am informed by this day's post, is his if he thinks it worth his acceptance? But that perhaps so unfortunately circumstanced as he is now, may be non it may be nonsense to appear to doubt. I only wish it were more valuable. It is a rectory, but a small one. The late incumbent, I believe, did not make more than 200 pounds per annum, and though it is certainly capable of improvement, I fear not to such an amount as to afford him a very comfortable income. Such as it is, however, my pleasure in presenting him to it will be very great. Pray assure him of it. Eleanor's astonishment at this commission could hardly have been greater had the colonel been really making her an offer of his hand. The preferment, which only two days before she had considered as hopeless for Edward, was already provided to enable him to marry, and she, of all people in the world, was fixed on to bestow it. Her emotion was such as Mrs. Jennings had attributed to a very different cause. But whatever minor feelings less pure, less pleasing, might have a share in that emotion, her esteem for the general benevolence and her gratitude for the particular friend which together prompted Colonel Brandon to this act were strongly felt and warmly expressed. She thanked him for it with all her heart, spoke of Edward's principles and disposition with that praise which she knew them to deserve. 
and promised to undertake the commission with pleasure if it were really his wish to put off so agreeable an office to an another. But at the same time, she could not help thinking that no one could so well perform it as himself. It was an office, in short, from which, unwilling to give Edward the pain of receiving an obligation from her, she would have been very glad to be spared herself. But Colonel Brandon, on motives of equal delicacy, declining it likewise, still seemed so desirous of its being given through her means that she would not on any account make farther opposition. Edward, she believed, was still in town, and fortunately she had heard his address from Miss Steele. She could undertake, therefore, to inform him of it in the course of the day. After this had been settled, Colonel Brandon began to talk of his own advantage in securing so respectable and agreeable a neighbor, and then it was that he mentioned with regret that the house was small and indifferent. An evil which Eleanor, as Mrs. Jennings had supposed her to do, made very light of, at least as far as regarded its size. So what Colonel Brandon proposes is not marriage to Eleanor, but he tells her that the, the, um, the living at Delaford, so his property, has become vacant. So he is willing to give it to Edward, so then he can take orders and have an income, although it is very small, and the house is very small, uh, not good enough. And when Mrs. Jennings heard this, she thought that Colonel Brandon was talking about his own house, which is beautiful mansion. So she couldn't understand why on earth he was complaining about the state of the house to Eleanor. Uh, so let's continue. The smallness of the house, said she, I cannot imagine any inconvenience to them, for it will be in proportion to their family and income. by which the colonel was surprised to find that she was considering Mr. Ferrer's marriage as the certain consequence of the presentation, for he did not suppose it possible that Delaford living could supply such an income as anybody in his style of life would venture to settle on, and he said so. This little rectory can do no more than make Mr. Ferrer's comfortable as a bachelor. It cannot enable him to marry." I'm sorry to say that my patronage ends with this, and my interest is hardly more extensive. If, however, by any unforeseen chance it should be in my power to serve him farther, I must think very differently of him from what I now do, if I am not as ready to be useful to him then as I sincerely wish I could be at present. What I am now doing indeed seems nothing at all, since he can advance him so little towards what must be his principle, his only object of happiness. His marriage must still be a distant good, at least I am afraid it cannot take place very soon. Such was the sentence which, when misunderstood, so justly offended the delicate feelings of Mrs. Jennings. But after this narration of what really passed between Colonel Brandon and Eleanor, while they stood at the window, the gratitude expressed by the letter on their parting may perhaps appear in general not less reasonably excited, nor less properly worded than if it had arisen from an offer of marriage. And this is the end of chapter 39. So uh, Colonel Brandon is very generous in giving Edward, the living of Delaford, especially because they are not connected in any way. They are not relatives. They are not friends. But of course, he's doing this for Eleanor because he knows that uh, Edward Ferris is a friend of Eleanor's. Um, 
So Eleanor dreads that now, although she's also happy about it, she has mixed feelings. She cannot really rationalize what she's feeling, that Edward and Lucy have the means to carry on with the marriage. But Colonel Brandon says that the living is not enough. It is just enough to make Edward's life as a bachelor comfortable, but it is not enough for to allow him to marry. So it is good for Edward. It's a um, step up in his prospect. He had nothing before. Now at least he has this living and this possibility of income, but marriage is still off the equation for now. All right, so let's carry on with chapter 40 or chapter 4 in volume 3. Well, Miss Dashwood, said Mrs. Jennings sagaciously smiling as soon as the gentleman had withdrawn, I do not ask you what the colonel has been saying to you, for though upon my honor I tried to keep out of hearing, I could not help catching enough to understand his business. And I assure you, I never was better pleased in my life, and I wish you joy of it with all my heart. She understood it all wrong. She caught just a few words, and she creates reality as it would please her own wishes. So she imagines that Colonel has just asked Eleanor to marry her. So she says that she has never been better pleased in her life, and I wish you joy of it with all my heart. But of course, she's talking about something different than what actually happened. Thank you, ma'am, said Eleanor. It is a matter of great joy to me, and I feel the goodness of Colonel Brandon most sensibly. There are not many men who would act as he has done, few people who have so compassionate a heart. I never was more astonished in my life. Lord, my dear, you are very modest. I ain't the least astonished at it in the world, for I have often thought of late there was nothing more likely to happen. You judged from your knowledge of the colonel's general benevolence, but at least you could not foresee that the opportunity would so very soon occur. Opportunity, repeated Mrs. Jennings. Oh, as to that, when a man has once made up his mind to such a thing, somehow or other he will soon find an opportunity. Well, my dear, I wish you joy of it again and again, and if ever there was a happy couple in the world, I think I shall soon know where to look for them. And it's funny that they carry on this conversation, even though they're talking about different things. So, and here, when she says the happiest couple in the world, of course, Mrs. Jennings imagines Eleanor and Colonel Dashwood, but Eleanor then imagines Edward Ferris and Lucy Steele. And they carry on in this deception for a while, which is quite funny. You mean to go to Delaford after them, I suppose, said Eleanor with a faint smile. I, my dear, that I do indeed, and as to the house being a bad one, I do not know what the colonel would be at, for it is as good a one as ever I saw. He spoke of its being out of repair. Well, and whose fault is that? Why don't he repair it? Why should, who should do it but himself? They were interrupted by the servants coming in to announce the carriage being at the door, and Mrs. Jennings, immediately preparing to go, said, Well, my dear, I must be gone before I have had half my talk out. 
But, however, we may have it all over in the evening, for we shall be quite alone. I do not ask you to go with me, for I dare say your mind is too full of the matter to care for company. And besides, you must long to tell your sister all about it. Marian had left the room before the conversation began. Certainly, ma'am, I shall tell Marian of it, but I shall not mention it at present to anybody else. Oh, very well, said Mrs. Jennings, rather disappointed. Then you would not have me tell it Lucy, for I think of going as far as Holborn today. No, ma'am, not even Lucy, if you please. So that's good. Otherwise, um, Mrs. Jennings would have spread the wrong rumors of the engagement between Eleanor and the Colonel Brandon. No, ma'am, not even Lucy, if you please. One day's delay will not be very material. Until I have written to Mr. Ferrers, I think it ought not to be mentioned to anybody else. I shall do that directly. It is of importance that no time should be lost with him, for he will, of course, have much to do relative to his ordination. This speech first puzzled Mrs. Jennings exceedingly. Why Mr. Ferris was to be written to about it in such a hurry, she could not immediately comprehend. A few moments' reflection, however, produced a very happy idea, and she exclaimed, Oh, oh, I understand you. Mr. Ferris is to be the man. Well, so much the better for him. I, to be sure, he must be ordained in readiness. But I am very glad to find things are so forward between you. But, my dear, is not this rather out of character? Should not the colonel write himself? Sure, he is the proper person. Eleanor did not quite understand the beginning of Mrs. Jennings' speech. They're a bit confused, both of them. <laughs> Neither did, neither did she think it worth inquiring into, and therefore only replied to its conclusion. Colonel Brand is so delicate a man that he rather wished anyone to announce his intentions to Mr. Ferris than himself. And so you are forced to do it. Well, that is an odd kind of delicacy. However, I will not disturb you, seeing her preparing to write. You know your own concerns best. So goodbye, my dear. I have not heard of anything to please me so well since Charlotte was brought to bed. To have the baby, right? And away she went, but returning again in a moment. I have just been thinking of Betty's sister, my dear. I should be very glad to get her so good a mistress. But whether she would do for a lady's maid, I'm sure I can tell. She's an excellent housemaid and works very well at her needle. However, you will think of all that at your leisure. Certainly, ma'am, replied Eleanor, not hearing much of what she said, and more anxious to be alone than to be mistress of the subject. How she should begin, how she should express herself in her note to Edward, was now all her concern. The particular circumstances between them made a difficulty of that which to any other person would have been the easiest thing in the world. But she equally feared to say too much or too little and sat liberating over her paper with the pen in her hand till broken in on by the entrance of Edward himself. He had met Mrs. Jennings at the door in her way to the carriage. As he came, oops, as he came to leave his farewell card and she, after apologizing for not returning herself, had obliged him to enter by saying that Miss Dashwood was above and wanted to speak with him on very particular business. Eleanor had just been congratulating herself in the midst of her perplexity 
that however difficult it might be to express herself properly by letter, it was at least preferable to giving the information by word of mouth when her visitor entered to force her upon this greatest exertion of all. Her astonishment and confusion were very great on his so sudden appearance. She had not seen him before since his engagement became public, and therefore not since his knowing her to be acquainted with it, which, with the consciousness of what she had been thinking of and what she had to tell him, made her feel particularly uncomfortable for some minutes. He too was much distressed, and they sat down together in a most promising state of embarrassment. Whether he had asked her pardon for his intrusion on first coming into the room, he could not recollect. But determining to be on the safe side, he made his apology in form as soon as he could say anything after taking a chair. Mrs. Jennings told me, said he, that you wished to speak with me. At least I understood her so, or I certainly should not have intruded on you in such a manner though at the same time I should have been extremely sorry to leave London without seeing you and your sister, especially as it will most likely be some time. Um, it is not probable that I should soon have the pleasure of meeting you again. I go to Oxford tomorrow. If Eleanor is not good with words, I mean, expressing her feelings, Edward is even worse, and he does know, doesn't know what to say. He's very embarrassed. You would not have gone, however, said Eleanor, recovering herself and determined to get over what she so much dreaded as soon as possible, without receiving our good wishes, even if we had not been able to give them in person. Mrs. Jennings was quite right in what she said. I have something of consequence to inform you of, which I was on the point of communicating by paper. I am charged with the most agreeable office, breathing rather faster than usual as she spoke. Colonel Brandon, who was here only 10 minutes ago, has desired me to say that, understanding you mean to take orders, he has great pleasure in offering you the living of Delaford, now just vacant, and only wishes it were more valuable. Allow me to congratulate you on having so respectable and well-judging a friend and to join in his wish that the living, at about 200 a year, were much more considerable and such as might better enable you to, as might be more than a temporary accommodation to yourself, such in short as might establish all your views of happiness. What Edward felt, as he could not say it himself, it cannot be expected that anyone else should say for him. He looked all the astonishment which such unexpected, such unthought-of information could not fail of exciting, but he said only these two words. Colonel Brandon. Yes, continued Eleanor, gathering more resolution as some of the worst was over. Colonel Brandon means it as a testimony of his concern for what has lately passed, for the cruel situation in which the unjustifiable conduct of your family has placed you a concern which I am sure Marianne, myself, and all your friends must share, and likewise as a proof of his high esteem for your general character and his particular approbation of your behavior on the present occasion. Colonel Brandon giving me a living. Can it be possible? 
the unkindness of your own relations has made you astonished to find friendship anywhere. No, he replied with sudden consciousness, not to find it in you, for I cannot be ignorant that to you, to your goodness, I owe it all. I feel it. I would express it if I could, but as you well know, I am no orator. You are very much mistaken. I do assure you that you owe it entirely, at least almost entirely, to your own merit and Colonel Brandon's discernment of it. I have had no hand in it. I did not even know, till I understood his design, that living was vacant, nor had it ever occurred to me that he might have such a living in his gift. As a friend of mine, of my family, he may perhaps, indeed I know he has, still greater pleasure in bestowing it, but upon my word, you owe nothing to my solicitation. Truth obliged her to acknowledge some small share in the action, but she was at the same time so unwilling to appear as the benefactress of Edward that she acknowledged it with hesitation, which probably contributed to fix that suspicion in his mind which had recently entered it. For a short time, he sat deep in thought after Eleanor had ceased to speak. At last, and as if it were rather an effort, he said, Colonel Brandon seems a man of great worth and respectability. I have always heard him spoken of as such, and your brother, I know, esteems him highly. He is undoubtedly a sensible man, and in his manners, perfectly the gentleman. Indeed, replied Eleanor, I believe that you will find him, on farther acquaintance, all that you have heard him to be. And as you will be such very near neighbors for I understand the parsonage is almost close to the mansion house. It is particularly important that he should be all this. Edward made no answer, but when she had turned away her head, gave her a look so serious, so earnest, so uncheerful, as seemed to say that he might hereafter wish the distance between the parsonage and the mansion house much greater. Colonel Brandon, I think, lodges in St. James Street said he soon afterwards, rising from his chair. Eleanor told him the number of the house. I must hurry away then to give him those thanks which you will not allow me to give you, to assure him that he has made me a very, an exceedingly happy man. Eleanor did not offer to detain him, and they parted with a very earnest assurance on her side of her unceasing good wishes for his happiness in every change of situation that might befall him. On his with rather an attempt to return the same goodwill than the power of expressing it. When I see him again, said Eleanor to herself, as the door shut him out, I shall see him, the husband of Lucy. How painful that must be for her, right? And with this pleasing anticipation, she sat down to reconsider the past, recall the words and endeavor to comprehend all the feelings of Edward, and of course, to reflect on her own with discontent. When Mrs. Jennings came home, though she returned from seeing people whom she had never seen before, and of whom therefore she must have a great deal to say, her mind was so much more occupied by the important secret in her possession than by anything else, that she reverted to it again as soon as Eleanor appeared. Well, my dear, she cried, I sent you up the young man, did not I do right? And I suppose you had no great difficulty? You did not find him very unwilling to accept your proposal? No, ma'am, that was not very likely. Well, 
and how soon will he be ready? For it seems all to depend upon that. Really, said Eleanor, I know so little of this kind of forms that I can hardly even conjecture as to the time or the preparation necessary, but I suppose two or three months will complete his ordination. Two or three months, cried Mrs. Jennings. Lord, my dear, how calmly you talk of it. And can the colonel wait two or three months? Lord, bless me, I'm sure it would put me quite out of patience. And though one would be very glad to do a kindness by poor Mr. Ferrers, I do think it is not worthwhile to wait two or three months for him. Sure, somebody else might be found that would do as well, somebody that is in orders already. So they keep talking about different things, right? My dear ma'am, said Eleanor, what can you be thinking of? Why, Colonel Brandon's only object is to be of use to Mr. Ferris. Lord bless you, my dear. Sure, you do not mean to persuade me that a colonel only marries you for the sake of giving ten guineas to Mr. Ferris. The deception could not continue after this, and an explanation immediately took place, by which both gained considerable amusement for the moment, without any material loss of happiness to either, for Mrs. Jennings only exchanged one form of delight for another, and still without forfeiting her expectations of the first. Ay, ay, the parsonage is but a small one, said she after the first ebullition of surprise and satisfaction was over and very likely may be out of repair, but to hear a man apologizing, as I thought, for a house that, to my knowledge, has five sitting rooms on the ground floor, and I think the housekeeper told me could make up 15 beds, and to you, too, that had been used to live in Barton Cottage. It seemed quite ridiculous, but, my dear, we must touch up the colonel to do something to the parsonage and make it comfortable for them before Lucy goes to it. But Colonel Brandon does not seem to have any idea of the livings being enough to allow them to marry. The Colonel is a ninny, my dear. Because he has 2,000 a year himself, he thinks that nobody else can marry unless. Take my word for it, that if I am alive, I shall be paying a visit at Delaford Parsonage before Michaelmas, and I'm sure I shan't go if Lucy ain't there. Eleanor was quite of her opinion as to the probability of their not waiting for anything anymore. And that is the end of chapter 40 or chapter 4 in volume 3. Um, I think this is a very funny uh, chapter, especially the conversation between Mrs. Jennings and Eleanor when each one is talking about something different, but they keep going and going and going confuse a bit but still the conversation makes sense to a point until the deception is uh, explained so Edward comes to visit and Eleanor tells him in person about Colonel Brandon's gift that he will give him the living at Delaford and it makes Edward really happy um, and to Colonel Brandon it seems it is not enough for Edward and Lucy to live on, to be able to marry based on this um, living at Delaford. But Mrs. Jennings has a different opinion. She says, you know, Colonel Brandon is rich, so he thinks that no one can live with less money than he does. Uh, and she thinks that Lucy and Edward will marry soon. And that makes Eleanor think that perhaps they've already waited too long and that they would not wait for anything else anymore. Yes. 
So what is going to happen? So let's take a look at the last chapter we are going to read and discuss today, which is chapter 41 or chapter 5 in volume 3. And let's see what's going to happen. Edward, having carried his thanks to Colonel Brandon, proceeded with his happiness to Lucy, and such was the excess of it by the time he reached Bartlett's, Bartlett's buildings that she was able to assure Mrs. Jennings, who called on her again the next day with the congratulations. Mrs. Jennings is always there, ready to know more. That she had never seen him in such spirits before in her life. Her own happiness and her own spirits were at least very certain, and she joined Mrs. Jennings most heartily in her expectation of their being all comfortably together in Delaford Parsonage before Michaelmas. So far was she, at the same time, from any backwardness to give Eleanor that credit which Edward would give her, that she spoke of her friendship for them both with the most grateful warmth, was ready to own all their obligation to her, and openly declared that no exertion for their good on Miss Dashwood's part, either present or future, would ever surprise her, for she believed her capable of doing anything in the world for those she really valued. As for Colonel Brandon, she was not only ready to worship him as a saint, but was moreover truly anxious that he should be treated as one in all worldly concerns, anxious that his thoughts should be raised to the utmost, and secretly resolved to avail herself at Delaford as far as she possibly could of his servants, his carriage, his cows, and his poultry. It was now above a week since John Dashwood had called in Berkeley Street, and as since that time no notice had been taken by them of his wife's indisposition beyond one verbal inquiry, Eleanor began to feel it necessary to pay her a visit. So this is another social protocol that she should follow. Uh, let's take a look at the note here. The sick call, a rigid social duty, not doing so would cause a serious break with the John Dashwood family. So as they know that Fanny Dashwood had not been well and they have not heard from them in a while, it was polite, was expected for her, for them to go there to visit, to check if everything was fine. This was an obligation, however, which not only opposed her own inclination, but which had not the assistance of any encouragement from her companions. Marianne, not contented with absolutely refusing to go herself, was very urgent to prevent her sister's going at all. And Mrs. Jennings, though her carriage was always at Eleanor's service, so very much disliked Mrs. John Dashwood, that not even her curiosity to see how she looked after the late discovery nor her strong desire to affect her by taking Edward's part, could overcome her unwillingness to be in her company again. The consequence was that Eleanor set out by herself to pay a visit, for which no one could really have less inclination, and to run the risk of a tete-a-tete -tete with a woman whom neither of the others had so much reason to dislike. Mrs. Dashwood was denied, but before the carriage could turn from the house, her husband accidentally came out. Now, here, Mrs. Dashwood was denied. It means that she had given instructions to the servant to tell anyone coming that she was not at home. Uh, but as Eleanor was leaving, 
perhaps relieved that she didn't have to go through that social uh, obligation uh, at all. Her husband, so John Dashwood, Eleanor's stepbrother, comes out. He expressed great pleasure in meeting Eleanor, told her that he had been just going to call in Berkeley Street, and assuring her that Fanny would be very glad to see her, invited her to come in. So Fanny was in fact at home. She had just instructed the, um, the servants to say that she was not at home. They walked upstairs into the drawing room. Nobody was there. Fanny is in her own room, I suppose, said he. I will go to her presently, for I'm sure she will not have the least objection in the world to seeing you. Very far from it, indeed. Now especially there cannot be. But, however, you and Marianne were always great favorites. Why would not Marianne come? Yeah, right. <laughs> they slighted Marianne and, and Eleanor for so long, and now in comparison with Miss Teals, Eleanor and Marianne are looking good. So he asks, why would not Marianne come? Eleanor made what excuse she could for her. I'm not sorry to see you alone, he replied, for I have a good deal to say to you. This living of Colonel Brandon's, can it be true? Has he really given it to Edward? I heard it yesterday by chance and was coming to you on purpose to inquire farther about it. It is perfectly true. Colonel Brandon has given the living of Delaford to Edward. Really? Well, this is very astonishing. No relationship, no connection between them. And now that livings fetch such a price, what was the value of this? About 200 a year. Very well. And for the next presentation to a living of that value, supposing the late incumbent to have been old and sickly and likely to vacate it soon, he might have got, I dare say, 1,400 pounds. If Colonel Brennan had sold it, he would have gotten around 1,400 pounds for it. And how came he not to have settled that matter before this person's death? Now, indeed, it would be too late to sell it, but a man of Colonel Brandon's sense. I wonder he should be so improvident in a point of such common, such natural concern. Well, I am convinced that there is a vast deal of inconsistency in almost every human character. I suppose, however, on recollection, that the case may probably be this. Edward is only to hold a living till the person to whom the colonel has really sold the presentation is old enough to take it. Aye, aye, that is the fact. Depend upon it. Eleanor contradicted it, however, very positively. And by relating that she had herself been employed in conveying the offer from Colonel Brandon to Edward, and therefore must understand the terms in which it was given, obliged him to submit to her authority. So John Dashwood is thinking about the profits here that Colonel Brandon could have made with selling the living if he had known that the person who owned it, if it was a sick man or an old man, would, vac would vacate it soon. Um, but now that that person is gone, it would be too late to sell it. Why? Let's take a look at this footnote. In a case of simony, that is to say traffic in sacred things, it was illegal to sell a living after the incumbent's death, but legal to sell, as a promise, before that event. The value of a living was often advertised in the newspaper with remarks on the age and health of the present incumbent. Can you imagine? 
Jane Austen's father's living was acquired through his uncle Francis' purchase of the next presentation to two livings, Dean and Ash, so that whichever became vacant first could be bestowed on his nephew. Now, that's a very interesting piece of contextual information. So we don't know what happened to the previous occupant of Delaford living. Perhaps it was an unexpected death, and that is why Colin O'Brien had not thought ahead in selling the, the living before, before the death. Um, in any case, it is what it is. He gave it to, to, um, to Edward. It is truly astonishing, he cried after hearing what she said. What could be the colonel's motive? A very simple one, to be of use to Mr. Ferris. Well, well, whatever Colonel Brandon may be, Edward is a very lucky man. You will not mention the matter to Fanny, however, for though I have broke it to her and she bears it vastly well, she will not like to hear it much talked of. Elnor had some difficulty here to refrain from observing that she thought Fanny might have borne with composure an acquisition of wealth to her brother by which neither she nor her child could be possibly impoverished. Sting here, right, Elnor? Mrs. Ferris, added he, lowering his voice to the tone becoming so important a subject, knows nothing about it at present, and I believe it will be best to keep it entirely concealed from her as long as may be. When the marriage takes place, I fear she must hear of it all. But why should such precaution be used? Though it is not to be supposed that Mrs. Ferris can have the smallest satisfaction in knowing that her son has money enough to live upon, for that must be quite out of the question, yet why, after her late behavior, is she supposed to feel at all? She has done with her son, she has cast him off forever, and has made all those over whom she had any influence cast him off likewise. Surely after doing so, she cannot be imagined liable to any impression of sorrow or of joy on his account. She cannot be interested in anything that befalls him. She would not be so weak as to throw away the comfort of a child and yet retain the anxiety of a parent. Oh, Eleanor, said John, your reasoning is very good, but it is founded on ignorance of human nature. When Edward's unhappy match takes place, depend upon it, his mother will feel as much as if she had never discarded him, discarded him. And therefore, every circumstance that may accelerate that dreadful event must be concealed from her as much as possible. Mrs. Ferris can never forget that Edward is her son. You surprise me. I should think it must nearly have escaped her memory by this time. You wrong her exceedingly. Mrs. Ferris is one of the most affectionate mothers in the world. Eleanor was silent. We think now, said Mr. Dashwood after a short pause, of Robert's marrying Miss Morton. Eleanor, smiling at the grave and decisive importance of her brother Stone, calmly replied, the lady, I suppose, has no choice in the affair. This is great, hmm? the way uh, Eleanor confronts her brother. It's as if it doesn't matter for the girl, if it's Robert or Edward. And she says, the lady, I suppose, has no choice in the affair. Choice? How do you mean? As if it's such an absurd thing, thing to think that the lady could have something to say on the matter of who her husband should be. 
I only mean that I suppose from your manner of speaking, it must be the same to Miss Morton, whether she marry Edward or Robert. Certainly there can be no difference, for Robert will now to all intents and purposes be considered as the eldest son. And as to anything else, they are both very agreeable young men. I do not know that one is superior to the other. Elnor said no more, and John was also for a short time silent. His reflections ended thus. Of one thing, my dear sister, kindly taking her hand and speaking in an awful whisper, I may assure you, and I will do it because I know it must gratify you. I have good reason to think, indeed I have it from the best authority, or I should not repeat it, for otherwise it would be very wrong to say anything about it. But I have heard it from the very best authority. Not that I ever precisely heard Mrs. Ferris say it herself, but her daughter did, and I have it from her, that in short, whatever objections there might be against certain, a certain connection, you understand me, it would have been far preferable to her. It would not have given her half the vexation that this does. I was exceedingly pleased to hear that Mrs. Ferris considered it in that light, a very gratifying circumstance, you know, to us all. Very gratifying indeed, right? To know that, you know what, if Edward had chosen Eleanor instead of Lucy, she would have been half, she would feel half the fixation she now does. And John Dashwood thinks that by telling this to Eleanor, he's actually making her, giving her a favor that she would like to know that. It would have been beyond comparison she said, apparently Mrs. Ferris, the least evil of the two, and she would be glad to compound now for nothing worse. But, however, all that is quite out of the question, not to be thought of or mentioned as to any attachment, you know. It never could be. All that is gone by. But I thought I would just tell you of this because I knew how much it must please you. Not that you have any reason to regret, my dear Eleanor. There is no doubt of your doing exceedingly well, quite as well, or better perhaps, all things considered. Has Colonel Brandon been with you lately? Elnor had heard enough, if not to gratify her vanity and raise her self-importance, to agitate her nerves and fill her mind. And she was therefore glad to be spared from the necessity of saying much in reply herself, and from the danger of hearing anything more from her brother by the entrance of Mr. Robert Ferrers. After a few moments' chat, John Dashwood, recollecting that Fanny was yet uninformed of his sister's being there, quitted the room in quest of her, and Eleanor was left to improve her acquaintance with Robert, who, by the gay unconcern, the happy self-complacency of his manner while enjoying so unfair a division of his mother's love and liberality to the prejudice of his banished brother, earned only by his own dissipated course of life and that brother's integrity, was confirming her most unfavorable opinion of his head and heart. They had scarcely been two minutes by themselves before he began to speak of Edward, for he too had heard of the living and was very inquisitive on the subject. Eleanor repeated the particulars of it as she had given them to John, and their effect on Robert, though very different, was not less striking than it had been on him. He laughed most immoderately, the idea of Edward's being a clergyman and living in a small parsonage house diverted him beyond, beyond measure, 
and when to that was added the fanciful imagery of Edward reading prayers in a white surplice and publishing the bands of marriage between John Smith and Mary Brown, he could conceive nothing more ridiculous. What a prejudiced brother, right? He's laughing at um, Edward's condition and at his job that he would be reading the bands of marriage between John Smith and Mary Brown. So these names are very common people. So he means that Edward would be working for um, a lower rank in society. Eleanor, while she waited in silence and immovable gravity, the conclusion of such folly could not restrain her eyes from being fixed on him with a look that spoke all the contempt it excited. It was a look, however, very well bestowed, for it relieved her own feelings and gave no intelligence to him. He was recalled from wit to wisdom, not by any reproof of hers, but by his own sensibility. We may treat it as a joke, said he at last, recovering from the affected laugh which had considerably lengthened out the genuine gaiety of the moment. But upon my soul, it is a most serious business. Poor Edward, he is ruined forever. I am extremely sorry for it, for I know him to be a very good-hearted creature, as well-meaning a fellow, perhaps, as any in the world. You must not judge of him, Miss Dashwood, from your slight acquaintance. Poor Edward. His manners are certainly not the happiest in nature, but we are not all born, you know, with the same powers, the same address. Poor fellow. To see him in a circle of strangers, to be sure it was pitiable enough. But upon my soul, I believe he has a good heart, as good a heart as any in the kingdom. And I declare and protest to you, I never was so shocked in my life as when it all burst forth. I could not believe it. My mother was the first person who told me of it. And I, feeling myself called on to act with resolution, immediately said to her, My dear madam, I do not know what you may intend to do on the occasion. But as for myself, I must say that if Edward does marry this young woman, I never will see him again. That was what I said immediately. I was most uncommonly shocked indeed. Poor Edward, he has done for himself completely, shut himself out forever from all decent society. But as I directly said to my mother, I am not in the least surprised at it. From his style of education, it was always to be expected. My poor mother was half frantic. So he was feeding the fire, putting ideas in his mother's head to cast Edward off. Have you ever seen the lady? asked Eleanor. Yes, once while she was staying in this house, I happened to drop in for 10 minutes and I saw quite enough of her. The merest awkward country girl without style or elegance and almost without beauty. He's talking about uh, Lucy. I remember her perfectly. Just the kind of girl I should suppose likely to captivate poor Edward. I offered immediately, as soon as my mother related the affair to me, to talk to him myself and dissuade him from the match. But it was too late then, I found, to do anything, for unluckily I was not in the way at first and knew nothing of it till after the breach had taken place, when it was not for me, you know, to interfere. But had I been informed of it a few hours earlier, I think it is most probable that something might have been hit on. I certainly should have represented it to Edward in a very strong light. My dear fellow, I should have said, considered what you are doing. You are making a most disgraceful connection in such a one as your family are unanimous in disapproving. 
I cannot help thinking, in short, that means might have been found. But now it is all too late. He must be starved, you know. That is certain, absolutely starved. He had just settled this point with great composure when the entrance of Mrs. John Dashwood put an end to the subject. But though she never spoke of it out of her own family, Eleanor could see its influence on her mind in the something like confusion of countenance with which she entered and an attempt at cordiality in her behavior to herself. She even proceeded so far as to be concerned to find that Eleanor and her sister were so soon to leave town as she had hoped to see more of them an exertion in which her husband, who attended her into the room and hung enamored over her accents, seemed to distinguish everything that was most affectionate and graceful. And that is the end of chapter 41 or chapter five, volume um, three. So we see that uh, in this chapter, we get to know Robert Ferris a little bit better. He's a terrible person. He laughs at Edward's prospects and laughs at Lucy for being a poor countryside girl. And we'll see what happens in the upcoming chapters. What will happen to Lucy and Edward? And how will Elmer finally feel about it? Will she be open about it or will she hide her feelings forever? That is what we'll talk about in our next session, which will be next Thursday, so our normal Jane Austen day. And we'll talk about chapters 42, 43, 44, and 45, um, or chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 of volume 3. So I hope you've enjoyed this session and that you're enjoying Sense and Sensibility. We're reaching, we're moving towards the end of this very of this fascinating story by Jane Austen. Um, and remember that if you want to know more about Jane Austen, learn more about her writing career, the world in which she lived, the published and unpublished uh, uh, works, the critical reception of her work and much more, you should um, check out the online course the Jane, the Jane Austen Club that I have created for books and culture. You can find more information on the website, booksandculture.club. Thank you for being here today, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this 11th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 42 to 45. As we move towards the end of this novel, I'd love to know what other books you'd like to read along with me in this format. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world and literary career, you cannot miss the online course, The Jane Austen Club. Find out more information on the website, booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature.